morning, everyone. Good, good to see you. A holy, healthy Advent to all of you as we uh, enter the season, however you are this morning. Uh, it's great to be with you. Uh, you may know, if you've been around, that we've just uh, wrapped up what we've called the 40-day experiment in practicing the way of Jesus, and on Friday we had a little party uh, to celebrate that. We're going to continue along looking at practicing the way of Jesus, and I guess the experiment continues, but the official 40-day experiment has uh, wrapped up, and we've been looking at this for a number of months, practicing the way of Jesus. And I think uh, some of the feedback that's come uh, has been that this practicing the way of Jesus is both more compelling and more challenging than I may have originally thought. Uh, Curious how you'd fill in uh, this phrase, practicing the way of Jesus is. Uh, Let's just hear from a few of you, those of you who want to yell out, how would you fill in the blank so far? Sorry? Confusing. Hard to schedule. Hard to schedule. That's great, Kale. Overwhelming. Overwhelming. Varied. Simple but not easy. More than the experiment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's lots more we could say, but as we've been as we've been learning, looking at discipleship through a lens of apprenticeship, we've we've discovered that an apprentice is someone who reorganizes their life to be with another person, to become like that person, and to do what that person does. And we've been specifically looking at what does it mean to apprentice Jesus, to uh, look and discover his overall way of life and find ways that that integrates and becomes my way of life. And we've, I think, discovered that it's very active. It's very active, and we've talked about closing the gap between what we profess and what we practice, closing that gap. I like how uh, Daniel Berrigan puts this. Where does your faith live? In the head, in the heart? Your faith is rarely where your head is at, just as it's rarely where your heart is at. Your faith is where your ass is at, where you are living. What are you doing These things, not our actions, our charity, our morality, are what determine whether we believe or not. I think this is what makes it so challenging because our lives aren't like a a still photo in a frame. Our lives are more like moving pictures. And, And to understand them, you have to watch and see the plot and see the action, the rising and the falling. It's not captured in a photograph. It's a film. Or, or how Richard Rohr puts it, we don't think ourselves into new ways of living. We live ourselves into new ways of thinking. And this is the genius of Jesus, that he invites people to participate, to follow, before I even understand it all. We've also talked about it as kind of a try-before-you-buy approach. So, we're practicing the way of Jesus. We're also in the season of Advent. Nelson set that up really well 
And we're at a season in life, I don't know how many times I've heard a version of this question from a number of people, but it's something like, what in the world is going on? It seems like the world's really crazy right now. I've heard people say, like, is there something in the water? What is going on? I like this tweet. Folks, I think we need to start coming to terms with the idea that the rapture happened and only David Bowie and Prince made the cut. <laughs> like, are, we, are we in some sort of end, end times, apocalyptic? It seems to be going haywire and crazy. I'm not sure if you feel that way. But the last couple of weeks, there has been a very large conversation going on about misogyny and sexual harassment. I don't know if you've been following hashtags like Me Too, as well as Church Too. Painful, yet hopeful. There's an exposure being taken place. The foundations of patriarchy, are, are there's a shaking happening right now. I don't know if you're following what's going on in North Korea. Mounting threats, everyday reports. You know, we just get used to news coming by like, yeah, it seems daily the threat of uh, nuclear war is increasing. You know, oh, good, next. Oh, recipes, hmm. Uh, you know, it, so we kind of we get uh, both numb to it. I don't know if you've noticed or you heard hundreds killed in Egypt. say a lot about 45 in general. I'm just not going to touch 45. What else is making the world feel crazy? What, what, what would you say it's, if, if you feel that way? What is making the world feel crazy? Climate change. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Economic inequality, debt, debt. Extinction, of extinction of species, guns, guns. hatred, memes. Would love to just get you to unpack that a bit, but we'll keep going. <laughs> yeah. We could keep going. We could do another round, but we won't. We could keep going and say, what is making your world feel crazy? It might be some of the same answers, but we might get stuff like debt or mental illness or relationship dysfunction and breakdown and despair. We might say things that are going on with our bodies or our minds and our emotions or relationships. Very personal things that feel chaotic, which in many ways seems absolutely perfect for this time of year. Soon, Merry Christmas, because it's in this swirling mix of political upheaval. It's in this mounting pressure... It's in the flexing of might by the principalities and powers that the first Christmas happened and all the subsequent Christmases still happen. It's in that context where we celebrate Christmas. 
See, because the assumed context, the nostalgic context for Christmas is really like, I celebrate Christmas ideally uh, by a warm fire with some eggnog or some version of that. Your, your Christmas pillows and your dog is in the Christmas sweater and everything's just right and the home smells like fur and pine. A, a nostalgic context for Christmas is some version of that. Whereas the actual context for Christmas is a, a cold ache and a bit of chaos. A cold longing that things are not as they should be. And I don't know how they're going to... F- the world feels chaotic. I feel chaotic. That's the place where Christmas collides. And we are in uh, dark days this Advent. We're in dark days and we do not need cute stockings or to haul ourselves to a million Christmas events. And we don't need to binge on nostalgia, as good as some of that stuff is. We need our hopes and our fears met by someone who could do something about those hopes and fears. We need renewed and tuned longings for a Messiah who could bring justice and peace to those hopes and fears. And we need people who will practice the way of this Messiah in the context of those hopes and fears. So Christmas is about our hopes and fears. And Advent then is about naming those and bringing those so they can be addressed. I'd like to pray and we're gonna get into John's gospel. God, we come this morning with a tangle of hope and fear. Some real, some imagined. Some of them confessed even this morning and some we're trying to find words for. Would you increase in us new faith to believe that you have, you have a way to address our particular hopes and fears in 2017 in December? Would you redirect where our hope has been pointing? And would you reveal who Jesus is for us, for this neighborhood, for the life of the world? Bring a spirit of revelation here so we can see you new. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to look at uh, John's gospel with you this morning. And this is one of those, uh, you know, you could do endless sermons on this. There's just way too much going on. And so uh, it's, it's, been a, it's been a joy getting to dwell in these words this week and, and to get to do so with you this morning. So much going on here. We can't get to all of it, but we're going to get to some of it. So John 1, verse 14, if you want to follow along uh, in a Bible, you can. The Word became flesh, made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The word became flesh. The word. One, one way to understand the word really simply is to say God's self-expression. God's self-expression. So how does God express himself? The word became flesh. The way God has chosen to make himself known finally and ultimately is in a real human historical person. The word became flesh. And you may know that 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 idea, uh, the word is incarnation. You may know at the heart of that word incarnation is carny. Not Ferris wheels and rides, different kind of carne. Carne uh, is chili con carne, right? <laughs> chili with meat. So incarnation means literally in the meat, in the flesh. God in, God con carne. God in the flesh. God with a bod. And it sounds kind of irre- irreverent, uh, which is perfect for the incarnation. God in a bod. Ha <laughs> ha, silly. What? No. That sounds scandalous, which is, again is perfect. I like how Frederick Beekner puts it. I think we look at this every year in Advent, and there's a good reason why. Listen to Beekner here. He says, The word became flesh, wrote John, and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. That is what incarnation means. It's untheological. It's unsophisticated. It's undignified. But according to Christianity, it is the way things are. Incarnation means that all ground is holy because God not only made it, but walked on it, ate and slept and worked and died on it. If we are saved anywhere, we are saved here. And what is saved is not some diaphanous or transparent distillation of our bodies and our earth, but our bodies and our earth themselves. Jerusalem becomes the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. And our bodies are sown perishable and raised imperishable. One of the blunders religious people are particularly fond of making is the attempt to be more spiritual than God. So the incarnation is scandalous, and there's a ton going on in it, which is why we have to revisit this every year. This, the incarnation of Christ is more than a means of getting Jesus to the cross in order to pay for sin. The incarnation of Christ is not the appetizer. It's, it's part of the main course. And, and when we realize that, then we're less likely to skip over it and just go, oh, okay, Jesus, baby, nativity stories, the kids will take care of that, don't need to give Much thought to that. Did you hear Sia has a new Christmas album? Oh, it's got a song about puppies. You know, no, 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 that's great. Enjoy your Sia Christmas album, but let's spend some time considering the incarnation of Christ if it's not something just to skip over. Well, so what's the big deal? And without getting into a ton of, uh, there's so much we could spend on this, we'll just do a real quick theological summary of what is the big deal of the incarnation. First, we could say, as Beekner noted, it's a reaffirmation. The incarnation, it's a big deal because it reaffirms God's original refrain over the world. In Genesis 1, do you remember what that refrain was? Anyone? It is good. 
So God apparently has not changed his mind about physicality and objects and materiality and the body and weather and animals and flesh. God delights in that. And, and actually in Genesis 1, it, it, we don't get it in the English. Like, it is good. That could kind of be said in a number of emotions. But in Hebrew, tov, tov, there's, some, there's delight, there's volume, there's rejoicing in the creative world. Matter matters to God. It's a reaffirmation of that. Second big, huge thing spend a lifetime on is redemption, that the incarnation is part of God's way of redeeming all things, people and places. The incarnation is part of his redemption. And the third thing is reimagination. The incarnation shows us what God is like and what a human is like. And that revelation is stunning. This is what we've read. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God. Verse 14. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. So it's to, to see the incarnation, to see Christ, to see God in a bod is to see what God is most like. God is like Jesus. Jesus is like God. This is stunning to, to uh, heal and to transform your vision of God. And it also reveals what it means to be human. The incarnation then is an invitation to be human in this way. So I want to consider this with you this morning. That the incarnation is both an event and a way of life. It's an event and a way of life. One more person to quote, and then we'll start looking at what does this mean. Uh, and I think we need, we have to lis- listen to St. Athanasius, Bishop of Alexandria, 4th century. It's good to read words not from our century. And uh, Athanasius struggled with a lot of contentious issues in his day, battling against Arius, uh, particularly arguing f- uh, about Christ. So a lot of work on Christ, his book on the incarnation uh, is... Um, really, really deep, a deep but accessible dive into incarnation. Had to pick one quote. Here it is. Jesus Christ, through his transcendent love, became what we are, that, we might bring up, that he might bring us to be even what he is himself. I think that captures the event and the way aspect of in- incarnation. It's an event where God in Christ became like you, fully identified, submerged in your humanity in order to, he descended in order so that he may, through his death and resurrection ascension, bring you to be like what he is. So, it's an event and it's a way of life. So what? Well, I think it's interesting in that John 1.14 verse, which we just read, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. There's a word there, the word dwell. Um, ske nao. You want to try it? Ske nao. Yeah, ske nao. Means dwelt. It means to live among. Uh, Eugene Peterson in his uh, translation of the message, he says moved into the neighborhood. That's how he translates ske nao. Another way people uh, use it is pitched his tent, okay? Which 
it has that connotation. It has a kind of a camping vibe, has a, a tent connotation to it. And for John's readers who know Israel's story, at this point, their ears are buzzing. They're like, ah, right, you're talking about glory, tent, dwelling among us. Yeah, I know this story. I know this story. I'm hearing Israel's story. When God rescued Israel from Egypt, leads them out into the wilderness, guides them by a cloud and a pillar of fire. There's visible, tangible indications of his presence and that God establishes the tabernacle or another phrase for that, the tent of meeting. And these are people of the presence. God was in their midst and working for them. And their whole identity was that God is in our midst. And their whole protection their ability, like in that kind of liminal, unguarded space, well, I don't know how we're going to f- fight against our enemies, but God's in our midst. And our whole direction, like it, it, literally, we're going in circles. I have no idea where we're going out here, but our directions are the tent. The tent's here. God's here. And so John's saying, God's come in a tent again. This time the tent was a human being. This was a Jesus tent. He, he came and he did what he did with Israel, but now he's doing it among you, and this tent is full of glory. Shekinah, this was the Israel's vision of glory. The Shekinah, weighty glory of God, the visible manifestation of God. And Jesus is telling his readers that God manifested himself most clearly not in the tent of meeting, like, you thought that was impressive, but mostly in the, t- in the tent of Christ. The word became flesh. Jesus is the Shekinah of glory. He came with a tent. So, if we were to summarize the incarnation, then why is it such a big deal that in Christ God reaffirms the created world, reaffirms his love for the body, for the material, that God redeems through this Christ all things, and that the invitation is to reimagine who God is like and what it means to be human, to be human in this way. And there's, of course, lots of ways to be human. And I was thinking this week how, um, well, I guess I should say I probably spend too much time on Twitter before that because Twitter is such a toxic place uh, at the moment. I mostly don't follow any of you by the way. Uh, this is more like people and journalists and, you know, people like putting ideas out in the world. And so often those ideas are so much of what we're contending over, I realized, is how to be human. I don't like your kind of humanity. You're guarding Roy Moore and Matt Lauer. You're sticking up for that. You, you, you're into that tax Reform, what we're arguing so often is about how to be human. That's what it boils down to is which way to be human leads to flourishing and leads to a world that we all can cohabit. So one way of being human is we could just say materialism, the materialist. And the focus of the materialist is body. You're all fabric. That's what you are. You're all fabric. 
And in a way, the anthropology then is about, you're basically an animal. You're some of your urges. Your humanity is reduced to biology. Use phrases like pure instinct or basic instinct if you're old enough for that. We use things like, oh, he's such a party animal, or she's a tiger. The animal is about, um, you are the sum of your urges, and as long as you don't hurt anybody with your urges, go for it. If it feels good, go for it. Life is your body, and the senses, and your physicality. And sometimes when we listen into conversations, maybe after a weekend or after, you know, kind of party animal night, you hear phrases like, we were out of our minds. What was I thinking? It's out of control. The sense of like, if, if my humanity is the sum of my urges, well, there we go. Nice. Um, then, then what this usually creates, like the outcome of this is it creates like a, a human draped Still can see you. Uh, a human, human draped and eventually smothered by impulse, and then like entangled in disordered desire, all the while saying, "Hey, I'm totally free. At least I'm not like a restrictive traditionalist religious nutball, because my freedom, my freedom is totally leaving me free." Like, this is a human being. This is flourishing. This is indulgence that leads to addiction. And Titus 2 says, when the grace of God appeared, that grace taught us to say no to the animal impulse. Titus says ungodliness, says no to being ruled by saying yes to everything. And having, not having a no in your vocabulary. The, the, when the grace of God appeared, it started teaching us how to be human. That indulgence is not emancipation. So that's one way to be human. That's the way of the materialist theological terms, if you care, you could say that's antinomianism, lawlessness, hedonism. It's one way to be human. The other way to be human, we could say, we looked at this, is Gnosticism. Looked at this in the summer. Gnosticism, other words for this, again, a theological way, you could say legalism, moralism, fundamentalism. Often, the focus is on the spirit. So if this is about the body, then this way of being human is spirit. And the anthropology is Angel. 
you're an animal, or you could be an angel. This is the opposite impulse. If this one is about indulgence, then this one's about repression. It's about denial, the denial of physicality, often the denial of sexuality. It's stuffing. It's repressive. This often is the way of the religious and the rule-bound who really like sharp lines and where the boundaries are and to demarcate who's in and who's out. This is really the way of fundamentalism, which isn't so much a belief system, but a way of holding your beliefs. And fundamentalism, I think, has totally taken over both conservative and progressive conversation. Because it's all, do you know how dangerous this stuff is? It's all about like pointing, oops, pointing stuff out. Oh, sorry, Theo. I didn't mean to catch you in the face. It's dangerous, people. This is really dangerous. (laughs) You know, people weighing this stuff around, trying to point out wrongdoing. Thinking, oh, I've got the right structure. I'm holding the line. I'm pointing out who's wrong. And I'm on this side. This stuff is dangerous and toxic and oppressive, particularly for the church. And what this creates is oppression and repression. There's another way, of course, to be human. Well, I should say, first for these two. So when we deny the spiritual dimension to our existence, when we make it all about the fabric and think we live like, like we're, that means we're living like animals, and when we deny the physical dimension of our existence, we end up living like angels, and both are destructive. Both are not fully human. They're destructive because this is not how God has made a human to be, made up of all flesh, fabric, and all pole. There's another way, and that's incarnation. The incarnation focus, as we've already looked at, focuses on body. Not a denial of the body, not a repression of the body, celebration of the body. Soul and their spirit. And they all hold and integrate together. What we often thought were opposed and often still are opposed in our way of doing politics or theology, often get separated on the spectrum of left and right, in Christ, adhere and belong. We've got body, soul, and spirit. And a tent that's taking longer than when I practiced. Here we go.
Incarnation did not come easy. (laughs) Didn't happen overnight either. As Jesus came, both in his birth and his life, which are all part of the incarnation, for the first time, we started seeing his glory. The glory of God and the glory of a human being fully alive. This was the first prototype where we got to say, oh, (laughs) oh, that's what the fabric and the poles are for. Oh, that's a flourishing human life. John's words are, he's full, full. Not flattened and not pokey. (laughs) Full. The word did not come pokey with truth. This is the first fully alive human being. It's the first time we've ever seen such a thing where a human being moved with genuine freedom. It wasn't the kind of freedom that's like, I'm totally free, man, and I'm rolling around on the ground. Actually moved and had enough space to welcome other people in. This is the first time where this tent showed up on the scene really upset people of the pole and people of the fabric. It's the first time we saw such a thing, full of grace and truth, full, full, not lacking, not skimping, full. Paul says in Colossians, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Full, the fullness of deity dwelling bodily. And he's saying, and you have been filled in him. How does that fit here? Wait, so the the incarnation is an event and a way. It's something to be seen. We've seen his glory. And John says in verse Hold on, 16, out of his fullness, we all have received grace upon grace. Out of his fullness, we have received. An experiment this Advent might be to read a gospel. If you want to continue practicing the way of Jesus, experiment could be read a gospel And watch for these three movements of the tent. Because this, I think, is how the tent moves. We see Jesus move in, with, and for. Which on its own is amazing. But we realize he's moving in, not above. He's moving with, not apart. He's moving for, not against. And this shocks people in the Gospels. In, with, and for. So it's something to see. It's something to pay attention to. It's something to be converted to. See it. It's also something to be received. Advent for you may mean receiving God's in, with, and for. Not in the hygienic places of your life, but the messy ones. The scandal of incarnation of, is where the in, with, and for takes place. Like, not in a manger, 
on the, on the edges of an empire in the middle of the night in obscurity and vulnerability among those who weren't looking. So that means that the incarnation continues in your life in your places of vulnerability and hiddenness on the edges where you might not perceive it in the very place where you think it should God, not here. What if, what if the thing that came to mind when we were talking about our hopes and fears on the personal level, what if that thing is actually supposed to be your manger this Christmas? What if that is the location for you to discover God being in, with, and for? What if being a mom who's shut in, who feels like she's losing her life in the outside of the world except for Instagram, what if you being a mom at home right now, that is the place God wants to reveal to you how he's in, with, and for you? What if in your loneliness, in the dissolving of a relationship, or the breakdown of your marriage, what if it's in that location God wants to reveal how he's in, with, and for What if it's in the location of mental illness? Or this year is finally the year you're going to just admit that you've been living in debt for years. And it's in the midst of your debt. God wants to reveal that he's in, with, and for. See, the startling thing about incarnation is that it arrives not before sobriety, (laughs) or, 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 sorry, after sobriety. Got that wrong. (laughs) Not after sobriety, right? Like, good, sober incarnation coming in. That's that's my default setting. I'll get this sorted, and then God can work. And then I will be worth love. The scandal of the incarnation is it happens before, in the midst of the mess. In, with, and for. I don't know if you have ever been camping with kids, but I don't recommend it. Um, I've, I've done it a lot, and we continue to do it. And uh, there's a number of years ago when our kids were quite small, we went to a festival and uh, were camping in a field. I just say, when you go camping with the kids, they contribute zero to setup. That still annoys me, you know. I've got a minivan, there's tons of gear, I've got a rooftop carrier, there's tons of gear, and there's a lot to do getting set up with camp. You arrive, and they think it's playtime. They don't realize it's work time. And uh, so, you know, as a parent, that's your job. You set up the tent, you enroll six thermorests and sleeping bags, and you get the right stuffed animals, and, or you guess which ones go in the right sleeping bags, and you got food, and you got the kitchen area. Wife Amy loves outside camp. She just loves camping, and I pretend to. And so we, we, uh, you get it all set up. It's a ton of work. And then eventually you get, you know, you've done all the s'mores, and you brought the chocolate, and Brush your teeth, get them in there, and it's just like popcorn. 
going off against the walls. They're pinging around they're like flashlights. They're shining them in their eyes. Someone was screening. Their retinas are burning. Uh, so they're, do, you know, it's like, okay, a flashlight's away. Next time, no flashlights in the tent. Okay, we get all the flashlights. I've got to collect them. Everybody in their bed. It's like WrestleMania whatever it's at, 16. So they're flipping on, stay in your bag, not on in your bag. I said in the bag, stay in the bag. You try and find that cinch and uh, just, you get nice and taut. Finally, you get everyone quiet. You, you know, before camping, you assume we're going to be out there like telling stories and some like 1950s throwback of how you imagine you're your uh, grandparents camping or something like that. No, you're just trying to like sleep, get to sleep time. So we finally did. It's later than I wanted. Some point in the middle of the night, woke up to the sounds of, of uh, vomit uh, hitting the tent wall. Um, and our, our oldest son was sick. And he, so he managed to kind of vomit all over his sleeping bag and himself. Um, Amy was not feeling well. And so before we went to bed, she said, by the way, I'm on the baby. You're on everyone else. I said, got it. Thinking, I'm in the clear. I don't have to deal with the baby tonight. Um, so I know I'm on. Got a vomit situation. So not prepared for vomit. And so, you know, wipes. Uh, nothing absorbent, okay? So it's just like, so you're doing the best you can. You go through a couple packages of wipes. Mostly get the vomit-contained towel over top of it. Good. Well, little buddy has no sleeping bag, uh, so I find a beach towel, say, here you go. Uh, Good night. Just a little window into my parenting here. And uh, go to sleep. Well, a little while later, he wakes me up. Dad, I'm, I'm really cold. Really cool. Yeah, of course you are. Okay, buddy, climb on in. So he comes into my sleeping bag and we're having a snuggle. It's nice. So the rest of the night goes by without a hitch until the early morning where I wake and realize I'm moist. <laughs> I'm very wet, in fact. That is not of my doing. Uh, the boy, the boy relieved himself, and um, I just thought, what do I, what do you do at this point? We're, we're like out of sleeping bags. Um, uh, well, let's just try and get a bit more sleep. It was too early to wake up. I don't know if you've ever just tried to sleep off a urination. Uh, this doesn't, this doesn't really work. <laughs> so, kind of slept there for a bit, and we're snuggling, and the birds start coming up and there's movement in the campsite. You can hear people rising and uh, Elijah stirs and I've got his head on my arm. He just turns to me and goes, oh, Dad, isn't camping awesome? <laughs> mm. Yeah, totally awesome. The, his ability to love and to, to, to genuinely say isn't this awesome is, uh, well, I guess have a dad who's in the tent and with him and for him. Totally unbeknownst to, like that I set the tent up and I organized it and 
He's not thinking about all that's been done for him. Just not, just not recognizing it. So Advent is to say, be able to say, isn't it awesome, God, that you are in, with, and for? And then practicing incarnation means not only seeing it and receiving it, but then learning how to do it. Because God in Christ is in, for, and with me, therefore, to practice the way of Jesus is to become a person who is in, with, and for other people. And that's where it starts getting good. That's where you wake up in a day and say, I know I've got my iCal, and I know I've got appointments, I know I've got, hopefully, work that I'm wanting to do, but God, alongside that, and in, and maybe even... Outside of that, I want to be about being a person who is in, with, and for in this day. How adventurous is that kind of life? What would that do to your marriage if your partner not only believed but felt and tangibly observed that you were in, with, and for them, not fixing, critiquing, and scheduling them? What if, if your posture had that shift and it became visible in your home? It would be an interesting experiment to see you know, how many days go by before they comment. What would this do to your parenting if you were to get in your child's world a little more often, down on the floor, into their kind of music, not yours, into their world of, of junior high girls? You get in and you're with and you're for in that place. What would it mean as a friend to, to be a person who's in, with, and for your friend in their struggles or their interests? What, what, would that, what kind of friend would that be? Or in your workplace? Or if, you, or if the next time you're at the pub, you're not listening to form a response when the other person's talking, you're listening to figure out, God, how might I be in, with, and for this person in the stuff they're talking about? That's a different kind of conversation than just thinking, what am I going to say? Can't wait to say this. I got something good. That's a daily adventure of incarnation to, to then start saying, God, where do you want me to go? Where can I set up my tent? Where are you calling me to dwell with Joel. <laughs> and I'm setting up camp here for a while. And, and by the way, incarnation costs. And it limits. It may mean that I, I don't see other people for a while. Because I'm with Joel for this season. It may mean saying no to a whole bunch of other invitations. I have to constrain myself gladly for Joel. Because I'm, I'm in his world, I'm with him, and I am for him. The beauty of incarnation is that it's mobile, right? It's not fixed, so you get to keep going around where you get to set up in the neighborhood and say, okay, hold on, Donald. <laughs> Sometimes our modes of incarnation are quite obtrusive. But gently come in and say, I'm with, I'm in, and I'm with, and I'm for Donald, and I'm going to figure out what that looks like, and I'm not going to assume that I know what being in, with, and for Donald would mean until I've dwelt among him. I have to have the tent 
in Donald's world for a while and listen, not coming in assuming I know. See, it's, it, this, this is where it gets fun, don't you think? You gotta move the tent around, follow, be blown around by the spirit and be adventurous. I'm just gonna set this up over by you two. What would, those of you who know these two, what would it be like to be in, well, not in their relationship, that's, no, never mind, that breaks down. Um, with and for them. With and for this relationship. Well, that's the good stuff. That's the good stuff right there. Right, Charlotte? With and for these two? Yeah. Suddenly your life starts getting bent out of yourself. And what am I getting for Christmas? And, and, and the consumerism and being draped by desire or being occupied with pointing poles. Suddenly life, Advent, leads us into incarnation to, to oh, now I am becoming a person full of grace and truth. Oh. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. And John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace, already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Jesus, we thank you for the scandal of the incarnation. We thank you that it's both an event and a way to be human. In a time where guilt and shame are tyrannizing people and nations, would you cause your people to be full of grace and truth? Out of your fullness, we would like to receive more grace and truth for ourselves in the exact location of our hopes and fears, but also then to be a mobile people who move, who seek, who dwell along others in their hopes and fears. And out of the fullness that we've received, we give. Would you broaden our imaginations by just being really narrow to these three things, in, with, and for Help us to experiment in your way this Advent. We need your grace and your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Advent is a time for longing and for directing our longings. And so as we come to the table, we come with those longings.